The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Nehemiah has been great. Uh, we just started it out. A um, couple things, a little bit of recap, a little bit of review um, as the lights are coming on still. Uh, like I said last week, uh, there's a lot of history, a lot of nuts and bolts that we have to kind of understand when it comes to getting the book of Nehemiah. Okay, now, and just, just parenthetically, just so you guys know, um, Wednesday nights, I think of them a little bit less like a, a time to preach and a little bit more like a time for Bible study, okay? So you're going to get a lot of stuff here that maybe you wouldn't get um, in more of a sermon type setting, but what I, what I really want us to do is really to dig into like the nitty gritty of Nehemiah, like looking at the history to not just the application, but looking at the history, looking at all the nuts and the bolts of it, looking at the words, breaking down phrases, all of that kind of stuff. So if you guys are with me, some of it may seem dry, but I promise you it's important to look at the specifics. It's important to get the history of this kind of stuff. And if you're note takers, hopefully there'll be some good stuff to take home. So if you, and I said this last week, if you were to turn on a movie halfway through, or let's say half an hour into the movie, you would be t- completely confused, right? It's really important that you understand the setting up of the characters. It's important that you understand the context of what happened in the beginning of the movie so that you can get involved in the story and so that it can tug on your heartstrings. That's the point of the movies, right? Tug on your heartstrings. Well, Nehemiah is a real event, a real historical thing that happened, and it happened at a specific point in Israel's history. So it's very important, this might be reviews for some of you guys, but just very quickly that we talk about how Nehemiah and how Israel got to the point that it's at in history at the specific place. Okay, Israel was an amazingly mighty nation at one point, okay? They were literally, they were a strong nation under the leadership of men that you may have heard of, like King David, King Saul, King Solomon. They were a united kingdom, okay? They were a powerful kingdom. They were an influential kingdom. And then something happened. After the death of Solomon, the kingdom split, right, into two, okay? Two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Ten of the tribes became the northern kingdom, and two of the tribes became the southern kingdom, And when that happened, things started to sort of drift, where they sort of each had their own history going on. If you look at Kings and Chronicles, it sort of separates it out somewhat there. You can study that. Um, Israel, I don't know if you guys know this, we just got done with the book of Amos, and Israel lived constantly in rebellion, constantly rebelling, constantly rebelling against the word of God, um, choosing not to obey God. For time, for time and time and time again, from year to year to year. And in the book of Amos, we looked at a few weeks ago how God, through the prophet Amos, was constantly telling Israel, you guys better cut it out. You guys better repent. You guys better come back to me because some stuff's going to happen that you're not going to want to happen. Okay? Now, what happened was, first happened to the tribes in the north. After time and time and time and time again of them rebelling from God, God finally says, I've had it. The Assyrian army comes in, takes over the northern tribe of Israel, leads them away captive. The northern tribe is done. It wasn't about 100 years later that just like God said, the southern kingdom was captured by the empire of the Babylonians. Babylonian was a one world ruling empire in the time. They came and led away the southern tribe. So, and then about 100 or so years later, we're in the time of Nehemiah. Okay, about 400 or so years before Christ. And Israel is at its lowest point. Okay? Israel, was, that was once this mighty nation, because of rebellion, because they did not repent, because they did not return to the Lord, was overtaken both north and south kingdoms by different nations and is scattered literally all over the ancient world. This is the state that Israel finds themselves in the book of Nehemiah. So 
Last week, we looked at, in chapter one, Nehemiah, our main character, is informed of some information of what's going on back at home, basically. He's reminded of the state of his country back in Israel, and it breaks his heart. Okay, it lands on him heavy. He finds out that Jerusalem, his home city, that the walls are broken down, that it's um, in distress, that the remnant, that the people that are left in Israel are suffering, are struggling. Are, are, the, the nation that was once so mighty is now broken down. And it hits him deep in his heart. We saw that in chapter one. And when it does that, it births a passion in Nehemiah. It births the passion to see his city of, of um, help me out here, Uh, The capital of Israel. Wow, okay. Capital of Israel, Jerusalem. It births this passion for him to see it restored, to see it changed. Now, Nehemiah is an incredible book. Okay, can I just say that? Nehemiah is a book about leadership, a book about restoration, a book about hard work. Uh, has battle in it, has hope in it, perseverance, faith, struggle, success, all of the things that you would want to read about. It's an incredible book for leadership. And what it essentially is, it is Nehemiah going back to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So that's kind of where we're at. That's the book that we're studying. Um, That's a little bit of the historical timeline, just a brief overview of it. Having said that, let's get into it. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 1. For those of you that are maybe new, we teach expositionally, so we look at a piece of scripture, we'll talk about it, look at a piece of scripture, talk about it. So let's start with verse one. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, okay, if you guys remember him from last week, King Artaxerxes is the king of the ancient world at this time. He's the king of the Persian Empire, and he is literally, okay, the most powerful man on the face of the earth at this time. He's a big deal, a big shot says, when wine was before him, I, Nehemiah, the star of our book, took up the wine and gave it to the king. And then he says, now I had not been sad in his presence. Now why is Nehemiah giving a cup of wine to the king? This was his job. We talked about this last week, okay? Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. His responsibility was to test and to make sure all of the wine and all the drink that the king would ingest was not poisonous. Okay, that was his job. Um, And you may see that seems like kind of a stinky job, right? You got to make sure that, 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 that he doesn't get poisoned. But this was actually a pretty important and a pretty affluent job. This would have been a great position, actually, that he would have had um, in the kingdom of Persia. And then he says, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, what's he talking about here? If you remember in chapter one, Nehemiah receives the news that his country is basically in ruins and it breaks him down. It affects him deeply in all of his emotion. And he has not revealed yet how passionate he is about this to the king yet, okay? He's not been sad in his presence, basically. Verse two, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? Okay, so you're not unhealthy. There's nothing physically wrong with you, Nehemiah. Why is your countenance down, basically? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Sadness of the heart. So Nehemiah is so disturbed, so bothered, so upset by the news that he received about his hometown that he literally is sick. Physically, his countenance has changed because of what's going on emotionally. Now, have you guys ever noticed in life, it's kind of interesting how much emotional things can affect your physical countenance? I don't know if you guys have, I've been so stressed at points in my life that I literally could not eat. I felt sick to my stomach. It had nothing to do with physical, everything to do with emotional. 
okay? It's kind of crazy. You see that in the garden with Jesus even? He starts to sweat drops of blood because he's so emotionally taxed that his physical countenance changes, okay? Well, Amos basically, or Amos, man, I've been in Amos too long. Nehemiah basically can't hold back his emotion. He's so affected by what's on his heart about his homeland that he shows it to the king. The king sees it. And then it says that he was very afraid in verse two. Okay, so why is he afraid? Essentially, it's most likely because uh, the king didn't really want people to be upset around him. (laughs) You could kind of guess. Okay, if you're the most powerful person in the world, you don't want your cupbearer looking like he wants to go take a nap or go cry. So, Nehemiah's a little worried. He's, I'm a, I'm a little upset. I'm a little worried that the king's going to be upset with me for my countenance. Uh, but that's actually not so. Nehemiah, uh, I'm sorry, King Artaxerxes. Can I just say this? I don't want to call him Artaxerxes. That's just too long. Can we just call him King Art? Is that cool? Is everybody fine with that? King Art? Okay. If I say Artaxerxes 5,000 times, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to die. It's going to be bad. So um, King Art asks Nehemiah what's wrong, which means that he actually cared about him. He actually had interest in his feeling and his emotion. And can I say this just parenthetically? Like, can we get better at that as a church? I I think a lot of us, more than we realize, probably come in here on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings, um, putting on is the best of smile that we can and trying to seem like everything's okay, but in reality, a lot of us in here are really hurting. (laughs) A lot of us are really wounded. A lot of us are really struggling. Um, can we get better at noticing that? Like, I think it's cool that, that King Art notices that Nehemiah is totally out of it, totally struggling, totally in pain, totally frustrated, and takes the second to actually ask him. I don't know about you guys, have you ever had this moment? Um, I've had him at church before where, where you see someone and, and you say hi or whatever, and, and you can just tell there's something a little bit off, something a little bit off, and you just, you just kind of go out a limb and say, hey, you okay? <laughs> and not just like, hey, hey, everything cool? Okay, peace, you know, but no, seriously, like, you know, ask them in a way that they know you care and that you're gonna stop and listen to them and say, hey, is everything okay? And I've seen it, literally people's countenance are just like, oh, I'm so glad you asked me. I just need to talk about this so bad. And there's people coming in here every Wednesday and every Sunday that are dying for someone to ask them how they're doing because they're literally so frustrated with life and they're so upset and they're so stressed out. And even though we put on the face, Let's get better as a church as ministering to each other. It says in the New Testament that we are the church, that we're to minister to each other, that we're supposed to build each other up. So let's just get better at, at, at sort of noticing that kind of stuff. And then verse three. It says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Man, what a good diplomat Nehemiah is, right? It's always a great thing to say. I should have said that to my mom when I was a kid and I wanted something. Let my mother live forever. Smart guy, okay? Uh, He says, let the king live forever. He says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah basically says, why wouldn't I be sad? (laughs) My home is in ruins. The gates are torn down. The city has been burned. My people are hurting. My people are struggling. What an amazing sense of patriotism (laughs) that we see in Nehemiah. He cares so much about his people. He cares so much about his home, about his land, to the point where he would literally risk asking the most powerful man in the world what he's about to ask him. And don't, don't real quick too. Oh wait, we're not there yet. Verse four. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Okay, so the king's like, I know you need something. What's the deal? What are you looking for? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven 
And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. First of all, I love that Nehemiah again acknowledges that God is the, po- the power over the power. He's the sovereign over the sovereign, that he ultimately is in charge. I love that. But don't let the magnitude of this question pass you, okay? Nehemiah is basically asking the king of the ancient world if he can go back and rebuild a city that's already been conquered, already been taken, to militarily refortify it, and then to, to, to allow it to have government and allow it to thrive. That's basically, um, if you're a one world ruling nation and somebody says, I wanna come rebuild what you guys already took out, um, that's just not a good idea. They wanna keep their thumb on that. They don't want military things being rebuilt up. They don't want walls being rebuilt around there. So just keep in mind the magnitude of what Nehemiah is actually asking of the king. It's a pretty hardcore question and it's actually amazing how he responds. Verse six. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, we'll talk about that, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. So the king says says basically, I don't want to lose my cupbearer. How long are you going to be gone for? How long do you want to take off for, okay? Because he's obviously good at what he does. He obviously has a relationship with Nehemiah. He doesn't want him to just take off and leave forever. He says, how long are you going to be gone for? Now, it doesn't say it here, but in chapter 5, it says that they agreed on 12 years. Then Nehemiah would go away and would come back in 12 years, which is kind of cool. Man, that's really annoying, that sound. Um, should talk to the worship pastor about that. Um, I think it's really cool, personally, I think it's really cool that Nehemiah has this sort of a loyalty to King Art. I think it's really cool. He says, I, I want to go rebuild this city. I want to go do this. Um, but my loyalty is here, and I'll come back here and I'll come back and serve here. He's not just looking to to be sneaky. He's not looking to lie to the king. He's not looking to just run away and do his own thing. He actually wants to do it right. He wants to be loyal to the king, and he wants to return. I think that's cool. I think it's to be praised. And if you notice in verse 6, and this is where, um, for you uh, sort of nerdy theology people, um, in verse 6, in parentheses, in mine at least it says, uh, the queen sitting beside him, okay? It mentions the queen. Now, this was kind of interesting. I I learned this um, yesterday. The queen, uh, I don't know, if you guys ever read the book of Esther, um, it's actually, it's believed and it's probably true that Esther was actually the stepmother to the king in our story, okay? That Esther, the biblical character Esther, um, would have been somewhat of a stepmom to King Artaxerxes. Now, it's very possible that they had connection, that they had interaction, more probable probably that they had interaction, and it's very possible that she actually sort of softened his heart towards the Jewish people towards the nation of Israel. It's very possible that that could have happened, which would make a lot of sense when you consider that, um, it make a lot of sense when you consider, are you texting me right now? Seriously? Dude, your pastor, okay, is, is texting me. I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's my wife. I'm going to, you know, we're having a baby. He said, don't be lazy, it's Artaxerxes. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> Love you, man. Oh, that threw me off. Okay. Where was I? So it's very possible, okay, it's very possible that part of the reason that Artaxerxes uh, had such a soft heart towards Nehemiah was because the queen, Esther, had actually given him that soft heart, had actually intervened in his life, which I think that's kind of, kind of an interesting thing. But 
couple principles from this, okay? A couple principles from this interaction from Nehemiah to King Artaxerxes. Firstly, I, I think it's really cool and, and a good thing to note for us, just totally application-wise, that great freedom and great influence often comes with hard work and with loyalty and with tr- being trustworthy. I think that Nehemiah was given a great privilege to go and do a great thing because he worked his tail off under a pagan and under a Gentile king. Okay, are you following me with that? So if you want to do great things, but you don't respect your boss, and you don't respect your leadership, and you don't respect people in your life, then it it just doesn't quite add up, okay? Um, If if God's going to use us for great things, it's going to be through every avenue of our life. It's not just going to be in spiritual things, okay? I talk to guys that are my age or younger all the time that are going to college, and they're just totally like being losers at their job. But they're like, well, once I get my degree and get my career, then I'll work really hard. And I'm like, no, you won't. Like, you won't. If you don't work hard at your minimum wage job now, you're not going to work hard at your career job when you get your degree. Or you may not even get your career job when you get your degree. The reality is, is we need to give our best in every season that we're in, in everything that we're doing, in every job, whether it feels like it's important or unimportant. Nehemiah is a guy that just killed it under the kingship of a pagan guy. And because of that, he could go do awesome things. I think that's pretty cool. A second principle from this And this is really cool. This is really important. Listen, great joy is often found in building something that you have no intention of keeping. Okay, let me say that again. Great joy is often found in building something that you have no intention of keeping. Okay, think about this from Nehemiah's perspective. Okay, the king says, yeah, go build your city. Go be the governor of that city. Rule that city for me. But you need to be back in 12 years. So in other words, go work your tail off, build the city, get the infrastructure going, get government going, get things so that it's livable, get the wall built, and then come back. In other words, don't enjoy any of the fruit of what you're going to go do, okay? That's pretty cool, actually. It's cool because, I don't know about you guys, but whenever I pour myself into something constantly, I sort of start to think of myself as entitled to the reward of that. Okay, so whatever that is, whether that's raising your kids, whether that's working really hard at a job, whether that's a ministry, whether that's serving someone else, you start to expect that I should get some sort of a reward for that. But what Nehemiah did here in building the kingdom, okay, building God's kingdom is completely kingdom minded. And what I mean by that is that what God has called us to do in building the kingdom has nothing to do with what we reward from it. Okay, so if you serve at church, are you serving at church to get some sort of reward? No. Who is our reward? God is our reward. Jesus is our reward. This is the way that we're to serve in the new covenant, and it's a perfect picture of it. Nehemiah gets to build something and then leave it. (laughs) And he's not really looking to benefit from it. He's just looking to build it. Okay, let me just ask you guys, are we looking to build the church? Are we looking to build God's kingdom? Are we looking to get a reward from it? And you will know what, you'll know if you're actually looking to build it when you don't get the results and the results don't benefit you, but you still love to do it anyways, right? When you don't get asked to be the step-up teacher, when you don't get asked to do whatever the promotion thing is in the area that you serve, and you still do it anyways because you just love it, that's how you know I have a kingdom mindset for this, okay? It's important to think about. Some of you guys are gonna spend 18, 26 years raising kids, and those kids may never come home and say, thank you, mom, so much. Thank you, dad, so much for every diaper and for everything that you did for me. They may never do that. They may hate your guts. They may never talk to you again. But are you willing to invest in those kids anyways? 
because it's not about the results that you can benefit from. It's about God himself, and it's about building the kingdom. Are you guys willing to go to work every day to be honest, to do justice, and to do justly in your job, even if you don't get noticed for it, and even if you don't get the promotion, simply because it's kingdom work, simply because it's for God's glory? Are you willing to serve your spouse, even if she doesn't serve you or he doesn't serve you back in the way that you serve them, simply for the fact that that's what God would call you to do, and that's building the kingdom? Just a thought. Nehemiah goes anyway. Even though he's not going to get to govern it in 12 years, he still goes. He still does it, and he still works his tail off. Verse 7 and 8. Now, this is cool. Verse 7 and 8, I think, is a killer picture. Hopefully, I can communicate it clearly. Um, is a killer picture of the complexity of salvation. Okay, the complexity of salvation. So let's look at it. Verse 7 and 8. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, for the fortress, the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Okay, so I love this. It starts with the call first. Nehemiah has got this call, okay, this call to go and to rebuild the gates of his city. And just like Nehemiah had that call, okay, follow me on the picture here, just like Nehemiah had that call, you and I, at at salvation, it starts with a call, okay? God tugs on our heart. He gives us this call to come to him. It's happened with each of us that are believers. It starts with the call, but it doesn't end there, does it? God doesn't just call us and then not do anything after that. He doesn't just say, hey, come follow me. Okay, see you later. There's more complexity to that. Just like Nehemiah had this calling to go build the wall, it didn't end there. Okay, there was more to it. There's three things that Nehemiah asked of the king. Okay, three things that Nehemiah asked of the king. The first one was for favor. Okay, if you look back, um, I don't remember the exact verse, a few verses ago, he says, if I have favor with you, then allow me to do this. Okay, he asks for favor. Now, without the favor of the king, Nehemiah would not have been able to do anything. Do you know that? Okay, the Persian king was the ruler of the ancient world. Okay, without his favor, he's not going to do squat. He's not going to do anything. He has to have the favor, the right standing of the king. That's the starting point for this mission. That's the starting point for the building of the wall. Now, you and I, with the Lord, okay, before Christ and apart from Christ, had no favor with God. We had no standing with God. Okay, so we're called, but yet we have no favor. We have no standing with God. We're, we were, before Christ, we were at war with God. Before Christ, we were uh, set on literally destroying his kingdom rather than building his kingdom. Okay, we were sinners by nature and by choice. We were le- living in active rebellion toward God. We were under the wrath and the righteous indignation of his holiness. Okay, this was the standing. This was the lack of favor that we had with God before Christ. And then... Through Christ, right, through Jesus, okay, let me just, if I can just preach the gospel here for a few minutes, is that cool? Um, through Jesus, through Christ, okay, Jesus actually comes down and gives us his favor, gives us his standing with God so that we can now be in right standing because apart from Christ, we're not. Apart from Christ, we are abiding in his wrath. What Jesus did on the cross was he took and absorbed the wrath of God that was meant for you and me and then he gave us perfect and righteous standing and ultimately gave us favor with the king. 
He gave us favor with himself. When I took my wife home to meet my parents for the first time, okay, she instantly had favor with my parents, not because of anything she had done, right, but simply because she was my bride, and they treated her as a daughter because she was my bride. That's the same, that's the same picture. God, we have favor with God the Father because Christ has given us his right standing, has given us his position with the Father. So the first aspect of salvation is we're called. The second a- aspect of salvation is that we have favor with the king, just like Nehemiah. And then this is where it gets interesting. What does Nehemiah ask for? He asks for letters of pardon, doesn't he? He says, can I have letters of pardon? Because Nehemiah knows that even though he has favor with the king, that doesn't mean that everyone out there is gonna believe him. That doesn't mean that that's gonna carry over, okay? You guys ever know someone really cool or famous and you try to convince your friends that you know them and they're like, no, you don't. You don't know that person. Like, no, I swear, I know him. You You guys never done that? Oh, okay. Um, I do that with Jeff all the time. I'm like, no, I know Jeff Hens. I swear, we're we're buds. He texts me during sermons and they don't believe me. I don't know what, it's, (laughs) he's texting me right now. Look, (laughs) oh no. Um, I started a war here. This is bad. Um, So Nehemiah knows that, okay, he has favor with the king that he has a position with the king, but he needs, in order to accomplish his mission, in order to build the kingdom, he needs to be able to take that favor with him. He needs to be able to take that favor out. So he asks the king for letters of pardon, okay? Now this is cool, follow this. What Nehemiah would do is he would write out a letter basically signifying that he gave this permission, he gave this power to Nehemiah to go rebuild the city, and then he would put his signet ring into wax onto that letter. Now the king's signet ring was important. When you saw the signet ring of the king, that meant that all power and um, all the strength of the king was represented in that signet. So if you did not obey the orders of that signet, you got to deal with the king. You got to deal with all of his power. You got to deal with all of his might. So this is what Nehemiah asked for. He says, give me letters with your sign, with your signature on it so that when we come to Jerusalem and we have opposition, which we will, then I could show them your sign and I will have proof of my favor with you. Okay, now as Christians, what about us? What kind of favor do we have? What kind of, now follow the picture here. In Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, it says, in him, in Christ, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were, listen, sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So just like Nehemiah gets a call to go build the kingdom, just like you and me, as Christians, if you're a believer in here, have been called to go build the kingdom, and just like you and me, if you're Christians, have been given favor with God, it didn't end there. He also has given us this signature, this sealing, this sign of our favor with God, and it's the Holy Spirit. Do you guys know that? You wanna know how you're sealed? You wanna know how you know and you have assurance that you actually have right standing with God? It's through the Holy Spirit. That is the signature of grace on each of our hearts. That's why we can look and see if we have fruit. If the fruit of the Spirit is there, then we know that God has saved us. The Spirit is not only the sign of it, but it's the seal. It means that I can't walk away. I personally believe that. The Holy Spirit keeps me, holds me from walking away from the Lord. How cool is that? And then the third thing that Nehemiah asks for, he asks for building supplies. He says, it's not just enough that I have your favor. It's not just enough that I have proof for your favor. It's not just enough that I have this call, but also I need to actually build this wall, okay? I don't don't know if you guys know this, but you kind of need stuff to build things. Okay, write that down. Seriously, that's profound, okay? You need stuff to build things. So um, 
Man, that's good. I got to write that down. Um, you need stuff to build things. So Nehemiah asks the king, he says, can I get wood? Can I get lumber to go and actually build this wall? Lumber was super sought after at that, in that place in the Middle East. There's not a lot of lumber there, actually. It's kind of the desert. He asks for lumber, and Nehemiah grants it. He says, I'll give it to you. Now, this is cool. Follow the picture again. So God has called us. He's given us favor, just like Nehemiah. He's given us the signature of his grace, and he's equipped us to build the kingdom of God. When God saves, he doesn't just save, he also equips and he commissions. He's given us everything that we need. Just like the king Artaxerxes gave all the lumber to him to go build the wall, he's given us what we need to build the kingdom of God. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Through the Holy Spirit, God has granted us all things. Okay? We get to build the kingdom now. We get to build the kingdom because we've got favor, because we're sealed, and because we have what we need to build the kingdom. Okay? You guys following this? It's exciting. Verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat and the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people. There's the first mention of oppression. The first mention We'll talk a little more about that later. Who is Sanballat? Who is Tobiah? Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Okay, Samaria, if you're not familiar with that, if you remember the story of the woman of the well in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, she was a Samaritan woman. Okay, Samaritans is all you need to know. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Okay, they did not get along. So go figure that the Samaritan governor, the Samaritan ruler would have a big problem with this Jewish guy, Nehemiah, coming in and trying to rebuild Jerusalem. He'd have a big deal with it. Tobiah was the governor of the eastern region of the Jordan. That's all we really know about him. They'll come back up later. Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode on. Now, why does Nehemiah go at night? This is kind of interesting. Why does Nehemiah go at night? He doesn't want anyone to see that he's there. He doesn't want them to know that he's inspecting. He doesn't want them to know that he's coming up with a plan. Okay, he wants to keep that away from the attention of the leaders and keep that away from the attention of his enemies especially. Look at verse 13. I went out by night by the valley gate, so the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, that's my favorite one, um, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on the fountain gate to the king's pool, that's the, ki- the pool of Siloam, for you, if you guys remember that in the New Testament, pool of Siloam, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Okay. Interesting, why is there no room for his animal to pass, to get through the gates? Okay, now as archaeologists, I I learned how I actually dug up that side, the eastern side of Jerusalem, for those of you guys that were in Jerusalem with us, the side facing the Kidron Valley, okay, the eastern side where the Pool of Siloam is, they actually believe that because that was somewhat built on a slope, 
any of you guys understand gravity, you'll get this. It was sort of built on a slope. When the city was demolished, it sort of fell with gravity, and the majority of the rubble fell on the eastern side because that was where it sloped down. So it's kind of interesting, and it lines up here, that Nehemiah can't get through because all of the rubble had fallen on the eastern side of the city. Kind of interesting. Now, verse 15 Then I went up in the night by the valley, inspected the wall, turned back, and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. He hasn't told anybody yet what he's doing. He didn't come in and say, hey guys, I'm here, we're going to do awesome things. Okay, let me go figure it out, and then we'll talk. He didn't do that. He came in, nobody knew he was there. At night, for three days, he went and inspected. He went and figured out, saw the amount of damage that had been done, got a feel for what had to take place in order for the wall to be rebuilt. And then, once he gets a concise and a clear picture of what needed to happen, then he goes to the rulers and says this in verse 17. Then I said to them, by the way, isn't that a cool leadership, sort of a leadership principle there? Okay, sometimes we, we like want to get people to follow us and we want to be, be a leader and we step out and say, hey guys, come follow me. Okay, what should we do? What do you guys want to do? What do you think? You know, and, and there's a place for that, right? But I like Nehemiah's approach. He says, I'm going to take the time, do the reconnaissance, figure out, actually figure out what the job is that needs to be done. And then I'm going to come with a clear vision. I'm going to come with a direct answer on what needs to happen. I think that's a good leadership principle. I think we as leaders need to have vision, whether that's being parents, whether that's a leader at church, whether that's a leader at work, whatever that is, have a clear vision, pray through it on your own, figure out where you want to go, and then cast vision. Then it's clear, then it's concise, then it's direct. And he says to them in verse 17, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? He says, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for good work. Okay, really quick. Three important rules to vision casting, okay? Three important rules for vision casting. When you tell someone your vision and you say, here's what I wanna do, here's what we're gonna do, okay? Here's my vision. You need to tell them the problem, okay? You need to tell them the solution and you need to tell them the means. The problem, the solution, the means. Nehemiah does all three. The first thing he says is, he says, you see the trouble we're in? You see the problem here? Our city is in ruins. We have no government. We have no, um, we have nothing in place to survive here. We have no defense. You guys see the issue? He draws attention to it, how it lies in ruins. Okay, he creates the problem. He says, hey guys, here's the issue. Aren't you bummed out about that? Okay, how are we gonna fix it? Step two, the solution. Here's the solution. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So there's the problem. Here's the solution. Now what's the means? How are we going to do it? The means, he says, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Isn't that cool? He says, here's the issue, here's the solution, and here's how we're going to do it. The Lord's hand is with us. The king is with us. Everyone's on our side. Let's do this thing. Kind of a cool, just leadership, vision casting, take it for whatever it is. Now, 
verse 19 and 20, and we'll close with this. So Nehemiah has the vision. He has the calling, right? He gets the favor from the king. He gets the letters of favor, the signature of the king, so he has favor going into Jerusalem. And then he even gets the supplies that he needs to build the wall. And then what do you think happens? Opposition. Okay? Now listen, guys. You've been called. You've been saved, given favor with God. You've been given a seal. You've been given the Holy Spirit. And now guess what's coming? Oppression. Now guess, now guess what's coming? The enemy. Okay? It doesn't get easy once you get all those things. Why? Because we're on mission. And guess who hates the fact that we're supposed to be on mission? The enemy hates it. Satan hates that we are building the kingdom. So just like Nehemiah has given everything that he needs, right away he gets opposition. Look at verse 19 and 20. But when Sanballat the Horonites and Tobiah the Ammonites, servant of Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So let me just make this like clear as I possibly can. Okay, the question for all of us, including Nehemiah, is not if we will have oppression. Okay, the question is not will we have spiritual warfare? Will we be attacked by the enemy? The question as Christians is when Okay, it's not if, it's when and how. We will. If you are building God's kingdom, there is someone out there that has your number, that wants you to fail, that does not want the kingdom to be built. That's just how it is. We'll see this all throughout Nehemiah. Constant oppression, constant battles, constant fighting for this vision. Guys, if we're gonna build the kingdom at Heritage, Heritage will be attacked every week. If we're not gonna build the kingdom, we could probably live a pretty comfortable church existence, okay? We don't have to worry about making anyone mad with not marrying homosexuals. Uh, we can worry about not making any mad with all kinds of things, whatever we wanna do, but if we're gonna stand on truth, if we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, if we're gonna ask our people to actually build the kingdom, we will suffer for it. Our church may shrink. We may lose tax exemption. <laughs> Who knows? The reality is if we're serving the kingdom, if we're building God's kingdom, if people are getting saved, if people are getting baptized, if people are getting discipled, if your coworkers are hearing the gospel, Satan hates this church. And I know those things are happening. So guess what? Satan hates this church. And he hates you. And he hates what you're doing. Okay? That's a reality there. It's a reality with a face. It's a reality we have to deal with. If you, if you don't agree with this next statement, it's because you haven't lived long enough as a Christian. Serving God will be the hardest thing you ever do in your entire life. It will. It'll be the most rewarding thing you ever do in your entire life. It'll be the most enjoyable thing you'll ever do in your entire life. But being a disciple of Jesus is the hardest thing you will ever do. It will be so hard that you will fail miserably time and time and time again, okay? This isn't the message that gets everybody to stand up, okay? This is the message to Christians just being realistic. It's really hard. It's really hard because there's a real enemy that wants you to fail, that doesn't want you to build the kingdom, that doesn't want you to make disciples. That's the reality. You'll find the opposition as a Christian on every possible side. I used to think that if I was in church, it was everyone out there versus us, okay? Okay, we just gotta get them saved. We'll snatch them out of the fire and we'll bring them in. And then I realized that people in church stab you too, 
Did you guys know that? Oh, bummer. Okay, so opposition comes from every side. We're all beating each other up. The enemy's working in everything. He's working through church splits. He's working through gossip. He's working through the world, constantly oppressing in every way possible. You'll be attacked physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, mentally. Every avenue that there possibly is for the enemy to attack you, he will do it. Okay, any avenue that there is. Now, this isn't some kind of like, let's blame everything on the devil, okay? That's not what I'm saying, like, oh, my back hurts. Ah, the devil, you know? I mean, that's not true, okay? When you're doing kingdom work, watch out, okay? When you're building the kingdom, he has your number. He has your number. When you're standing for Jesus in your workplace, when you are standing and saying, I am a Christian, this is who I am, and telling people about the grace of God, watch out. (laughs) You may lose your job. Seriously, when you're raising your kids for Jesus and actually investing the gospel in your kids, it may crush you. It may cost you more than you had ever planned on. When you're pursuing a godly marriage, it's never gonna be easy. Pursuing righteousness is never gonna be easy. Everything that God has called us to do, he's equipped us for, but it's hard, okay? It's hard because we're at war. I think we forget that sometimes, I mean, good grief, we walk in here sometimes and we just do our church thing and sing a couple songs and walk out the door. Do we forget that we're being attacked every second of every day in our minds constantly? I mean, we need to be praying for each other. Good grief, what are we doing? Sometimes I think about that. I mean, we're at war. We're at war, guys. So the question is, what do we battle, okay? What do we battle? Let's figure that out. Ephesians 6.12 helps. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Does that sound intense enough? <laughs> this is what we're battling. Okay, we're not just battling, oh, I stubbed my toe, and oh, man, I'm hungry. Okay, uh, like first world problems. We're battling not just flesh and blood, but, but powers and world forces of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness. It's reality. Now, here's the funny thing about Tobias and Sam, whatever, okay? Don't remember their names. They're punks anyway, so who cares, right? Here's the thing about them. Can they do anything to stop Nehemiah? Absolutely not. Why? Because Nehemiah has favor with the king. Because Nehemiah has been given a seal. Because Nehemiah has the power of the king backing him. So what do they do? They just talk, right? Because that's all they can do. They just talk. They spit flames. They just try to get into Nehemiah's head just to, to throw him off course because in reality they have no power because the king has given Nehemiah the power. How cool is that? That's true for us as Christians, okay? The battle's been won. It's not a matter of whether the kingdom gets built. That's not on your shoulders. It's a matter of whether you want to jump in and be part of it or not, okay? But the reality is the kingdom will get built, death has been conquered, sin is done, it's been accomplished, Satan has no power, but you know what he can do? He can lie, and he's really good at it. He's really good, he's been doing it since the beginning of time and beyond. He is the liar of all liars. And what a cool picture here of Nehemiah's got these guys that can't really physically do anything, but man are they trying to get inside of his head. Second Corinthians. 
10, three through five, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And listen, take every thought captive to obey Christ because that's where the war is, okay? That's where the war is. That's the front lines, okay? Why do we spend an hour teaching Wednesdays, teaching Sundays? Because the front line's in your head. If we can get truth in, if we can get the word in, it pushes him out. That's the reality of it. I'll tell you guys, this is how I know, okay? This is how I know that when you're doing kingdom work, you get attacked. When I stand here before you guys on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning, it's, it is the most spiritual attack I've ever get. It's crazy. These are the things that go through my head, okay? Just being honest. I'm not looking for a pity party here. I'm just saying this is what goes through my head um, every time that I preach, every time that I preach the word. You're not qualified to do this. Nobody thinks you should be up here, which that's true, by the way. I'm not qualified to do this, so I, I agree. Satan tells us what's true a lot of times. You know that? Okay, people, people don't care about what you're saying. You're boring. Everyone wants to go to sleep right now. This room's too echoey. No one can hear what you're saying. Everyone wants to punch you because your music's too loud. No, I, I, I had that one. That's partly true. Uh, I need to find more than the gospel to teach these guys because that might get boring. Right? That's the stuff I think about. Man, is what I have in my notes here, is this going to be enough to excite everybody? <laughs> Just wrap it, wrap it up, Sam. Everyone's sick of you. No one wants to hear what you're saying. This isn't a pity party. This is reality. This is what happens to me when I stand up here. Okay? You don't even know what you're talking about, Sam. What do you know? You're 26 years old. Go to seminary. Seriously. And it freaks me out. And I have to constantly, every five minutes, remind myself, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word. It's not about you, it's about the gospel. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Quit it, get out of my head, get out of my head. I'm telling you, it's insanely oppressive. And I get done here, and you guys all go home, and I go pour my heart out to my wife and say, that sucked, it was horrible. Everyone looked at me like I had worms crawling out of my ears. She's like, Babe, what are you talking about? That was fine. I'm like, no, it wasn't. It was horrible the whole time. I was thinking I just want to leave. I just want to go cry. She's like, what are you talking about? It's because I'm being oppressed the entire time that I'm up here because Satan does not want me to proclaim the gospel because it builds the kingdom of God, because it breaks down the walls of oppression in your heart, and he'll do anything to stop it. It's crazy. Go serve and go build the kingdom, and you'll see if you haven't already what kind of oppression comes. I know that's not the most encouraging pep talk, but it's reality, okay? It's reality. It's just the way it is. It's how Satan works, you know? I had lunch with a brother today, just an amazing guy, been through some serious amount of life with God, failed a serious amount of time just like I have. And he said, he said you know what? He said, this is how Satan works. He works like an ax. And he just chops, just a tiny little bit at a time, just Chop, chop, chop. He doesn't care how long it takes to get you to fall. He just cares that you fall. He's sneaky, right? It's just lie here, a lie here, a lie here, a lie here. And before you know it, you didn't even see that he was chopping you down that whole time. And you say, how did I get here? That's how he works. It's just subtle, constant. Now, how big of a deal is this first depression that Nehemiah comes up against? It's not really a big deal. 
Who cares? I mean, yeah, they, they say that they don't want him here and they jeer at him, whatever that means. And, you know, but ultimately, it's just a chop. It's just constantly chop after chop after chop. And how long does it take before you fall over? That's how Satan works. Beware of that. Watch out for those little things that he does time and time again that are almost so small you don't even notice it. But he's there, and he's trying to get you to fall. Every single decision that you make matters. Whether someone's looking or not, whether it's big or small, it matters. Because it's his chopping axe constantly time and time again. Now, close on this. I know it's gone a little long. Three ways to battle, and this is quick. Three ways to battle. How do we wage war against this? Number one, and this is more pertaining to Nehemiah here. Number one, stay the course. Okay, all of you guys have something that you're doing in your life that you know you're supposed to be doing that's kingdom-minded, that's building the kingdom, and Satan every day tries to say, why don't you just put your mom in a home? Whatever it is. Why don't you just quit trying to make that happen? Why don't you quit evangelizing to that coworker? Why don't you just stop doing it? They're not listening to you. They don't care about the gospel, right? Stay the course. Play it out. Let God work. I think sometimes we're too easy to quit on things. We're too easy to say, you know what, it's just not working. Let's do something else. I think if God's put something in your heart, play it out. Nehemiah stayed the course, okay? Number two, battle with, sorry, battle by renewing your mind with truth. It seems obvious, but it's huge, okay? Renew your mind with truth. Look at our text. What what, What do these two guys say? They say, are you rebelling against the king? They're twisting things. You notice that? They're, they're, they're taking a truth and making it a false. They're saying, oh, you're trying to build Jerusalem so you can battle against the king. And that wasn't true. That was a lie. But I love Nehemiah's response. He responds with truth. Okay, and that's what we should do. When we get lies torn at us, we need to respond with truth. But you have no portion or right or claim to Jerusalem, Nehemiah says. He says, guess what? I know the Lord, and I know what he said, and I know the promise that he said that after 70 years that this nation was going to be restored, that if we turn back to him, he would bless us, we'd be a nation again. And Nehemiah spits truth back at him, and that's exactly what we need to do. We need the gospel. We need it, we need it, we need it, we need it every stinking day because we get lied to every day. Romans 12 too, Right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. And then lastly, and this this was my, my ultimate heart for you guys tonight. So if you just take this, okay? Many guys tried to go rebuild Jerusalem after. Read the book of Ezra, okay? Nehemiah wasn't the first to go try to rebuild the nation. Okay, but those guys, for some reason, it just didn't work out. And here's what I think the difference is, okay? Nehemiah had passion burning in his heart for a specific thing. He had passion burning. He didn't build the wall out of some sense of, sense of moral duty, okay? Nehemiah, was, Nehemiah wasn't like, oh, yeah, my, my home city is in ruins. I probably should do something about that. You know, that's probably what I should do as a good Jewish man. I should probably go rebuild. No, that wasn't it at all. His heart burned with passion to rebuild God's kingdom. And because of that, Nehemiah was untouchable. Even though oppression after oppression came, he carried it through to the end because it was deep in his heart, a deep passion. It wasn't just like, a, oh, I should do this. Oh, maybe I should go be a missionary because people do that that are Christians. Okay, maybe I should adopt a kid because that seems like a good Christian thing to do. No, what is on your heart in the deepest places? What has God sowed there for you to do? Find that thing. 
okay? Find that thing and then do it. (laughs) Find that thing. It may not be some epic uh, thing that you think it is. It may not be as big as you, as you, as like the movie kind of things that we think about. But the reality is that Nehemiah, God had planted something. In, you guys ever seen Inception? Anybody? Oh, man. He plants this thing in his wife's mind and she can't shake it. No matter what, she thinks she's dreaming when she wakes up. And God has planted things deep in our hearts. And we need to figure out what those things are. For some of you guys, it's adoption. You can't shake it, no matter what. Man, we got to adopt a kid. This is just what God's put on our heart. For some of you guys, it's just loving your kids and being a dad. Maybe you had a dad that wasn't there for you, and you're like, dude, God has planted in my heart. I'm going to be a dad that's there for my kids the whole way. And you see me, you guys, it's like, man, I just want to see people come to Christ. That's what God has planted in my heart. Man, pursue that stuff, because that's the stuff that the enemy won't be able to bump you off of course. If you say, I'm going to go be a missionary because I feel like I should, you'll be back in a year. But if you say, God is in the depths of my heart, given me a passion for this, you'll carry it through to the end. So I'll say this in closing. What is God placed deep in your heart? This isn't some ethereal, romanticized thing, okay? This is reality. All of you need to think about that. What is the most passionate thing that God has given me for his kingdom? In other words, what part of the wall are you gonna rebuild, okay? If we're rebuilding, if we're building God's kingdom, what is it that he's given you a passion for that cannot be shook, that cannot be bumped, that cannot be oppressed out of the way? And then lastly, let me ask you this. What's the biggest thing keeping you from doing that thing? What's the biggest thing keeping you from doing what Nehemiah did and said, I'm building the kingdom. I'm doing it. I'm sick of wasting time. God's put this on my heart. I'm making it happen. Because he's gonna do it by his spirit and by his might. And he's just waiting for you. We think about that this week. We think about that. What part of the wall has God buried it deep in your heart that you would build? And secondly, what's keeping you from doing it? Okay? Would you guys stand with me? Thanks for letting me go a little long. So tonight, God, we just uh, we thank you for Nehemiah chapter 2. I pray that it wouldn't just be a sermon that we forget, Lord, but that Nehemiah 2 itself would become just treasure for us, that we would take that chapter home and that uh, it would be something we could always remember, Lord. Something that we could always come back to and be refreshed by, God. I'm so thankful tonight for your kingdom. I'm thankful that you don't need us to build it, but that we get to. <laughs> I'm thankful that, Jesus, you've conquered every battle for us, that we just need to walk in that, Lord, that we just simply need to trust you, to treasure you. God, I thank you that the enemy has no arms, has no legs. All he can do is talk. I thank you for that truth tonight, God. So Lord, we just love you. Would you help this church to be on mission? Help this church to be set on and focused on building your kingdom, God, because that's what you called us to do. Help us to know how we do that in our workplaces, in our relationships, in our families, in our homes, God, and in all of our social circumstances. Help us to see how to build your kingdom in those places, Lord, and pray that in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy your evening.